Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores experience and meaning and their impact on individuals and the broader society. I was watching some psychology talks last night, and I stumbled on something called reactive abuse. What blew me away was recognizing that our justice system is actually predicated on it. We ignore the violence done by our empowered establishments and institutions, which only serve the interests of a narrow demographic with access to wealth, and instead we focus on and harshly punish the violence done by those who dare to defend themselves against it. So, a society saturated in injustice against many communities based on demographic traits chooses to only judge the responses to oppression while legitimizing the oppression. It clicked when I started to think about it in the context of the COINTELPRO episode I had just done. So with COINTELPRO, which I've been reading about, horrendous civil rights abuses were perpetuated by these operations, which used tactics we can still recognize as being in use today aimed at law-abiding citizen activist groups trying to change society and our system to end oppression. In all the reading and research I did, I never saw a single person involved in those programs on the operative side held to account. As far as I can find, no government officials were ever arrested for participating in COINTELPRO. However, Several members of the Black Panther Party were targeted and falsely accused of various crimes by the FBI under COINTELPRO, and many were imprisoned. Some of these cases were later overturned and dismissed due to illegal tactics used by the FBI. But no one was ever arrested for participating in COINTELPRO because the program was authorized by the government and considered legal at the time. The FBI, which was responsible for the program, argued it was necessary to protect national security and prevent subversive activity. The program was cloaked in secrecy, and its operations were designed to avoid detection and legal jeopardy by authorities. Additionally, many of the targeted groups were marginalized, and their voices were not heard by the popular media or political establishment. As a result, there was no political will to hold accountable those who participated in the program. The lack of accountability for those who participated in COINTELPRO was a further serious injustice. The program was responsible for numerous violations of civil rights, including illegal surveillance, harassment, and even violence against members of targeted groups. The program undermined the fundamental values of democracy and the rule of law. And despite the evidence of wrongdoing, the government has never held anyone accountable for their involvement in the program which has left a sense of frustration and distrust among many of the affected groups and the American people. There were a number of substantial civil rights violations by countless people involved in these federal programs. People were assassinated and falsely accused and imprisoned for many years. If they were lucky, maybe they managed to get out eventually, after losing much of their lives, and after all of their potential productivity improving the world was neutralized with them in prison or dead. The people responsible for all of this were never held to account. But if BLM protesters block a public road or set fire to a police car or even dare to run from a cop, that's all we, as a society, can see. We say, look at those protesters. What if an ambulance had to get through? Instead of, 
Look at those protesters working hard to call attention to the extreme levels of lethal institutional violence we perpetuate against them every day, the lives ruined or lost that we continue to ignore. Our justice system is predicated on protecting abusers and punishing any form of self-defense. Does it make sense to say that our system of justice seems to allow institutional abuse but criminalize reactive abuse or self-defense? It's a complex question, but in some cases the justice system appears to be designed to protect certain power structures or privileged individuals, while criminalizing actions taken by those who respond to or defend against the abuses perpetuated by these structures or individuals. This can result in a system that perpetuates institutional abuse while punishing those who resist or react to it, even in self-defense. In such cases, there may be a need for reforms in the justice system to ensure that it is fair and equitable for all individuals and communities regardless of their social or economic status. One prominent figure that stood up against U.S. systemic injustice and worked for civil rights, and who also ended up ground in the wheels of a COINTELPRO operation, was the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. was born on January 15, 1929, in Atlanta, Georgia. He grew up in a middle-class family and was the second child of Reverend Martin Luther King Sr. and Alberta Williams King. King's father was a prominent Baptist minister who played a significant role in the civil rights movement, and his mother was a former schoolteacher. Both of his parents were instrumental figures in shaping his life and beliefs. Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., in addition to being a prominent Baptist minister and civil rights leader in Atlanta, Georgia, was born the son of a sharecropper and a domestic worker in 1899 in Stockbridge, Georgia. Sharecropping isn't as widely used or recognized today, but it's a situation where a person who farms land pays the landowner with a portion of the crops they produce instead of money. This arrangement often puts the tenant farmer in a position of dependence on the landowner, who may provide the land, tools, and supplies needed to farm the land. Sharecropping was prevalent in the southern United States after the Civil War as a way of providing labor for the large cotton and tobacco plantations. It was often a difficult life because the tenant farmers had little to no control over their land or crops and could find themselves significantly in debt to the landowner. It was a system that perpetuated poverty and economic hardship for many people, particularly African Americans, who were often treated unfairly by landowners. Still, Martin Luther King Sr. went on to attend a prestigious historically black university, Morehouse College, where he was a classmate of the father of civil rights activist Julian Bond. Bond, by the way, went on to be elected to the Georgia legislature in 1965 and, among other accomplishments, was a co-founder for the Southern Poverty Law Center. After graduating in 1924, King Sr. became pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where he served for over 40 years. He was a strong advocate for civil rights and fought for the rights of black Americans in the South. He organized the Atlanta branch of the NAACP in 1929 and worked closely with other civil rights leaders of the day, including W.E. Du Bois and Thurgood Marshall. Du Bois founded the NAACP and was the first African American to earn a Ph.D. from Harvard University in 1895. And Thurgood Marshall, of course, known for becoming the first African American justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, hearing the landmark Brown v. Board of Education case, which led to the desegregation of public schools in the U.S. King Sr., meanwhile, continued to mentor his son, instilling in him a deep commitment to social justice and nonviolent protest. 
Alberta Williams King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother, was born in 1904 in Atlanta, Georgia. She was a graduate of another prominent historically black university, Spelman College, and a talented musician who played organ and piano. Like King's father, Alberta was also a strong advocate for civil rights and was active in local and national organizations, including the YWCA and the NAACP. She was a very deeply religious woman and instilled that as well in her children. She was a strong influence on Martin Luther King Jr.'s faith and his belief in the power of love and nonviolence. Tragically, Alberta King was murdered on June 30, 1974, by a gunman who seemed to be religiously rather than racially motivated. As a child, King attended segregated public schools in Atlanta, where he excelled academically. He skipped two grades in high school and enrolled at Morehouse College in Atlanta, his father's alma mater, when he was only 15 years old. While at Morehouse, King studied sociology and was exposed to the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi, who would prove to be an additional influence on his beliefs in nonviolent resistance. After graduating from Morehouse in 1948, King attended seminary school at Crozer Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. King received his Bachelor of Divinity degree in 1951 and became the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama in 1954. King's upbringing and early life were shaped by his family's commitment to the church and their involvement in the civil rights movement. He was taught to value education and social justice from a young age and was heavily influenced by his father's activism. These early experiences would lay the foundation for King's later leadership in the civil rights movement and his dedication to promoting racial equality and justice. You might imagine that King's promotion of nonviolent protest would have helped him avoid becoming a target of the COINTELPRO movement. But as we saw in a prior episode, reviewing the content of documents stolen from the FBI offices by Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI, the operations weren't really about addressing threats to national security, but neutralizing effective activists who were focused on making changes to the U.S. system in order to create more equity for marginalized communities. If King was able to do that, and also become known for a nonviolent approach, who knows? That could have made him even more of a threat if the goal is to neutralize any activism that can lead to powerful social change. COINTELPRO's activities against King were extensive and well-documented, some of the specific stories of abuse and illegal behavior against him include that COINTELPRO wiretapped King's phones in his offices, hotel rooms, and homes and recorded his private conversations. The FBI and COINTELPRO agents conducted extensive surveillance of King and his associates' activities in an effort to discredit him and his message. COINTELPRO created smear campaigns against King to discredit him and cast him as a communist sympathizer or an immoral public figure. They created false evidence and rumors to paint him in a bad light. The FBI and COINTELPRO leaked damaging information about King's extramarital affairs to the media, creating scandalous revelations that damaged his reputation and credibility. The FBI, through COINTELPRO, targeted King for harassment, including trying to force his hand at suicide through extortion tactics. Let's look at the first and second tactic, wiretapping and surveillance. These were some of the most notorious aspects of COINTELPRO's operation against King. Keep reminding yourself he was doing nothing illegal and threatening no violence. 
The FBI's efforts to monitor King's communications and activities began in 1961 and continued until his death in 1968. Agents eavesdropped on his phone calls, bugged his hotel room, and even monitored his personal conversations using hidden microphones. The FBI's justification for its surveillance was that King had ties to communist organizations and other radical groups which posed a threat to national security. The third tactic, smear campaigns, were intended to destroy his public reputation through propaganda and disinformation. The FBI used its resources to create anonymous letters and other materials designed to discredit King and his civil rights movement. For example, the FBI sent a letter to King in 1964 which contained evidence of an extramarital affair, suggesting that he was unfit to lead the movement. The letter was meant to cause disharmony among King's supporters and weaken his credibility. What's particularly fascinating to me about this is that I still remember being told that King's sex life somehow discredited his civil rights work. I never actually understood that argument, but it's strange to realize now that this was an actual federal government narrative intended to discredit him. It was promoted as propaganda. I'm not saying whether or not King had extramarital affairs. I'm saying that probably the only reason I know this is that the U.S. government decided to violate his civil rights, illegally surveil him, and then when they found no evidence of actual wrongdoing, they released purely salacious information about him that was discovered during that surveillance. This is absolutely illegal and unethical. And frankly, it's not even law enforcement. What laws were being enforced? Additionally, they were relying on social mores to destroy his work, when their legal efforts to do so came up empty. What King did was a personal matter between him and his wife, and I honestly don't even know it was a problem. I have no clue what their understanding was in their marriage, and more importantly, I don't need to know. This is a distraction from the larger point that our federal government took illegal action against a citizen who was working through legal channels to effect nonviolent change to society in order to promote more justice for marginalized communities. And our government was trying to destroy him because he was really good at civil rights activism, which is not supposed to be a crime and which shouldn't have concerned our law enforcement authorities. Citizens are supposed to be able to exercise a right to speech and protest. And in school in the U.S., it's stressed this right is particularly focused on political speech. I'm not saying King had ties to the Communist Party. I'm just asking, why can't someone be a member of the Communist Party without the government destroying their life? Why can't someone advocate for racial equity without the government destroying their life? I thought political dissent was allowed, even encouraged. So... How do we square this circle? But the infidelity letters went beyond that. Yes, COINTELPRO targeted Martin Luther King Jr. and his Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, under the direction of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. The FBI alleged King and the SCLC were a threat to national security due to their opposition to U.S. military involvement in the Vietnam War and their advocacy for civil rights and racial equity. But isn't that protected speech and advocacy? Isn't a citizen allowed to express opposition to a war? 
aren't we allowed to advocate for necessary reforms to achieve equity and justice? So why is protected speech and protected association being viewed as a threat to national security? How often have we been told that the beauty of the U.S. system is that it can change? But it seems like only very limited change that doesn't actually fix what's broken is allowed to exist without harassment. The FBI amassed more than 17,000 pages on King, originally seeking links to the Communist Party, which they never found. King's close associate, Stanley Levison, had done accounting work for the Communist Party USA, and also participated in the defense of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were executed in 1953 for espionage. This was how the FBI justified their suspicions. But Hoover had a white supremacist view of the black civil rights movement. An article in The Guardian about Hoover's obsession with destroying these efforts asks the following. What interest could an intelligence agency have in a man who plainly believed only in peace? In August 1967, four months after King called the U.S. government the, quote, greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, unquote, three months after 30 members of the Black Panther Party marched armed into the California state capitol and onto the front pages of newspapers worldwide, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of America's domestic law enforcement agency, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, issued the following directive. The purpose of this new counterintelligence endeavor is to expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of black nationalist hate-type organizations and groupings, their leadership, spokesmen, membership, and supporters. By hate-type organizations, Hoover explained that he meant, quote, such groups as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Congress of Racial Equality, and the Nation of Islam, unquote. The group Malcolm X belonged to until shortly before his murder in 1965. In February 1968, there was a massive demonstration in support of the then-imprisoned leader of the Black Panthers. Stokely Carmichael, who now goes by Kwame Ture, and H. Rap Brown merged SNCC with the Panthers. Hoover issued another directive, quote, prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the militant black nationalist movement. Malcolm X might have been such a messiah. Martin Luther King, Stokely Carmichael, and Nation of Islam leader Elijah Muhammad all aspire to this position. King could be a very real contender for this position should he abandon his supposed obedience to white liberal doctrines, unquote. And after the phrase white liberal doctrines, the word nonviolence is in parens. That ends the passage from The Guardian. Hoover was a man obsessed, and he had at his disposal a powerful organization that could operate in the shadows, completely protected from scrutiny or accountability. A research essay published at Brandeis University states the following. The FBI implied more than a mere association between King and the Communist Party USA. The FBI proposed that King and the Communist Party USA were conspiring to commit violent treasonous acts, 
On February 8, 1968, the FBI observed an exchange between Levison and Southern Christian Leadership Conference Executive Director William Rutherford. During their discussion, Levison and Rutherford decided to encourage King to assume a more liberal attitude regarding violence occurring at SCLC events. The file references a later meeting between King and Levison on March 29, 1968, during which, quote, Levison indicated to King that it was time for him to accept the position favorable towards the use of violence in the streets, unquote. And furthermore, quote, King agreed that there was great merit to what Levinson had suggested, unquote. This evidence postulates that King contemplated a shift to militant protest and that he would influence other African Americans to carry out violent acts on his behalf. The imagery of, quote, violence in the streets, unquote, alludes to the summer 1967 riot in cities such as Watts and Newark, during which African American protesters faced off against police officers. The FBI manufactured the seditious collusion between King and the Communist Party USA. Ultimately, such a danger would necessitate their ever-increasing response. Following Director Hoover's call, the FBI launched an exhaustive mission to pin anything on King. In another monograph by Churchill and Vanderwall, Agents of Repression, the authors expose the immense diversity of counterintelligence operations against King, and King publicly criticized the FBI for their failure to curb white supremacist activities. After King publicly criticized the FBI for their failure to curb white supremacist activities, the Bureau stepped up their operations against him. The FBI went through the trash at the SCLC headquarters, inspected King's financial records, and installed a covert listening device in his office. The FBI investigated other members of the SCLC in hopes that they could turn one of them against King. Donors to the SCLC received a fake letter from King notifying them of an internal revenue service investigation into the organization. The FBI would not pledge the resources to such a massive hunt unless they truly supposed it would turn up incriminating evidence on King. To believe that King was a criminal required the assumption that he was guilty in the first place. Nevertheless, the FBI's venture was futile as it failed to yield incriminating evidence against King. Consequently, the FBI began to look into more confidential aspects of King's life. The FBI's initial lack of success into defaming King necessitated increasingly aggressive surveillance tactics, particularly the gathering of knowledge into King's personal matters. In Racial Matters, University of Alaska Professor Emeritus of History Kenneth O'Reilly highlights the changing nature of the Bureau's relationship with King. Quote, the ease with which the FBI slid from the communist issue to the morality issue indicates that the director and his aides were looking for something, anything, that might work to discredit King, unquote. Prior to the expansion of COINTELPRO, the crimes against King centered on offenses such as treason, sedition, and inciting insurrection through the meshwork of alleged communist infiltration. COINTELPRO now became an investigation of moral offenses. From colonial times upward to the late 20th century, acts such as adultery, sodomy, and alcohol intoxication were punishable by jail time. Nearly all of these actions have been decriminalized throughout the United States. 
Nevertheless, they are still viewed as morally reprehensible. Criminality is commonly affiliated with immorality and sin, whereas moral offenses are infractions of religious doctrine. The FBI's newfound curiosity in King's morals conveyed an attempt to disparage him on an almost religious level. Hoover aspired to portray King as a criminal in the eyes of God. This form of intelligence gathering proved to be the most damning information compiled on King during COINTELPRO. And that ends the passage from the research essay published at Brandeis University. In other words, law enforcement went on a fishing expedition. And when they couldn't find anything after a long and exhaustive search, they decided to see if they could dig up anything that might be personally embarrassing to smear King in the eyes of the public. It was eventually alleged that he engaged in extramarital affairs. And pushing that narrative in order to publicly humiliate the man apparently wasn't sufficient. In a letter to King written in 1964, the FBI actually suggested that he should commit suicide in order to avoid public exposure of his alleged extramarital affairs. Commonly referred to as the suicide letter, it was sent by FBI Assistant Director William C. Sullivan under orders from the FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. The letter was designed to discredit and intimidate King and suggest that he commit suicide to avoid the release of allegedly damaging information about his personal life. The letter contained derogatory and explicit language and accused King of being a, quote, fraud. I considered reading the full text of the letter. It's available online. But after looking it over, I concluded it's not anything I would want to give a platform to. It's not only cheesy as hell, but incredibly offensive on a number of levels. If you want to read it yourself, you can look into it. It's openly available. But I'm not going to air that garbage here. I will only say that it ends with the following declaration, quote, King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do it. This exact number has been selected for a specific reason. It has definite practical significance. You are done. There is but one way out for you. You better take it, end quote and it ends with a nastily worded threat to expose the information nationally. Oh, and Assistant Director Sullivan, at the time, called King, quote, the most dangerous Negro of the future in this nation from the standpoint of communism, the Negro, and national security, unquote. Although King was never tied to any communist cause or movements, and he remained committed to nonviolence activism throughout his life. What made King a threat was not that he was a danger to the country, but a danger to the status quo. Again, a status quo were supposed to be allowed to challenge and change without government oppression and persecution. COINTELPRO also worked to disrupt King's movement by instigating internal conflicts and divisions. The FBI would create false letters and reports, impersonating civil rights leaders and spreading rumors to cause dissension among King's supporters. For example, COINTELPRO sought to create a rift between King and his close advisor, Stanley Levison, by falsely accusing Levison of being a communist. Levison and King worked closely together. Levison was a Jewish lawyer who helped craft King's iconic I Have a Dream speech. He donated his time to the SCLC and even acted as a ghostwriter for some of King's books. 
FBI wiretaps revealed that Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy and then-President John F. Kennedy had pressured Dr. King in person to break with Levison. Andrew Young of the SCLC stated, Stan Levison was one of the closest friends Martin King and I ever had. Of all the unknown supporters of the civil rights movement, he was perhaps the most important. Unquote. Coretta Scott King said, quote, Stanley Levison was more than one of my husband's most loyal and supportive friends. He was a trusted and dedicated advisor, a role he continued to play in support of my work at the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Social Change, unquote. But the FBI effort to drive a wedge between Levison and King worked to some extent, and King eventually severed his ties with Levison publicly, even though the two continued to collaborate privately. The FBI's COINTELPRO program had a profound and lasting impact on Martin Luther King's life and legacy. The surveillance and harassment he experienced had a chilling effect on his ability to conduct his work as a civil rights leader, even though he persevered. In his autobiography, King described the pressure from law enforcement, stating, quote, I was the target of an ongoing campaign by the FBI and other agencies to smear my reputation, to harass me, to intimidate me, and to put a halt to my work for freedom. Unquote. In 1964, in an interview with NBC News, he said, quote, It can be depressing sometimes to see the difficulties, the setbacks, the frustrations that one confronts when trying to make this dream a reality. Unquote. Moreover, King famously described himself as a person who was, quote, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, unquote. He also mentioned that he was under surveillance to his wife Coretta Scott King, saying he, quote, couldn't go anywhere alone anymore, unquote. I think it's easy to dismiss the strain this can put on someone, especially when the person we're discussing is such a larger-than-life figure like King. In the series on free speech, we talked about some of the horrible harassment endured by modern activists, and how the ones most targeted by the government, especially those who were harassed through abuses of the U.S. justice system, often quit doing activism entirely, or at least stopped supporting in person. I mean, if you remember, one person actually ended up without a home, struggling to just survive after what he went through. We might look back at King in hindsight and think of him as impervious to this type of stress and strain. Someone who puts himself out there enduring physical abuse and imprisonment, but who still stands up and speaks truth to power. They seem almost fearless. I think it's easier to think of someone like that as empowered and unfazed. But that actually objectifies them and dehumanizes them. It may seem like a positive admiration, but it doesn't really allow the person to be seen as vulnerable as any of us can be. It's important not to let his iconic image undermine his humanity and to allow that he probably was experiencing strain from all of this. His perseverance is likely more a product of his motivation for his goals of equity and justice than some sort of superhuman capacity to withstand the type of abuse and bombardment he was subjected to for simply using his voice and creating an effective platform. Just because someone manifests amazing resilience in the face of adversity does not mean that they don't feel everything they're enduring. It's important when we think of King, or any similar figure, to allow them their humanity. Despite the power of his image in history, 
the FBI's illegal surveillance of King ultimately weakened his movement and undermined his efforts to achieve true racial equity in several ways. The FBI's surveillance of King and other leaders caused divisions and mistrust within the civil rights movement. It led to tensions between King and other leaders who were not under surveillance, and it created mistrust among members of the movement who were concerned about the FBI's intentions. The constant surveillance and harassment by the FBI distracted King from his work and caused him to spend valuable time and resources dealing with legal and personal issues instead of focusing on civil rights. The FBI's efforts to discredit King by leaking damaging information to the media damaged his reputation and his credibility. This made it more difficult for him to gain support for his cause, and it weakened the effectiveness of his message. The FBI's surveillance of King and other civil rights leaders hindered progress toward racial equality by creating a climate of fear and mistrust in the African American community. This made it more difficult to mobilize people toward social change and prevented the movement from achieving its goals as quickly as it could have. COINTELPRO's actions against Martin Luther King demonstrate how government overreach and abuse of power can have a devastating impact on civil liberties, democratic institutions, and the pursuit of justice. The FBI's campaign of surveillance, harassment, and disinformation violated King's constitutional rights and ultimately weakened his movement, highlighting the importance of protecting civil liberties and maintaining checks and balances against the government power. Eventually, King went to Memphis, Tennessee, where he was supporting a sanitation workers' strike. On April 3, 1968, he gave his famous I've Been to the Mountaintop speech at the Mason Temple. During the speech, King spoke about the strike and rallied support for workers' demands. He also touched on other important issues of the time, including racism, economic inequity, and nonviolent protest. After the speech, King returned to the Lorraine Motel, where he and his associates were staying. The next day, April 4th, King was scheduled to lead a march through downtown Memphis in support of the strike. But before he could leave the motel, he was fatally shot while standing on the balcony of his second-floor room. James Earl Ray was identified as the assassin and later pled guilty to the crime. To this day, many continue to believe that there was a larger conspiracy involved in King's assassination. And frankly, with what was uncovered about COINTELPRO and their hostility toward racial equity and justice, and their willingness to engage in disruption, including helping to facilitate assassinations, I can understand why. In fact, after James Earl Ray was convicted for assassinating King in 1969, Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King's widow, began to question whether he acted alone. In 1977, she filed a wrongful death lawsuit against a man named Lloyd Jowers, a Memphis restaurant owner, and several other alleged co-conspirators. Jowers claimed that he had received $100,000 from a man he did not know to organize King's assassination, and that the actual shooter was a Memphis police officer. The suit claimed the assassination was a conspiracy involving local, state, and federal agencies as well as organized crime figures. The lawsuit went to trial in 1999 and lasted for 30 days. The jury ultimately found that Jowers and unnamed others had been part of a conspiracy to assassinate King. However, they also found that the government was not directly involved in the assassination, but that it likely played a role in the conspiracy to cover up the truth about what happened. The verdict was seen as a major victory for Coretta Scott King and her family. I should note that there was limited contemporaneous evidence to support Jowers. 
but what was presented seems to have been sufficient to convince a jury. Additionally, beyond James Earl Ray's conviction, no one else was ever criminally charged in the murder of Dr. King. The legacy of his battle for civil rights and racial equity continues to rage on today. The most recent movement rose and fell in a way that was eerily similar to what we have seen before with COINTELPRO. Once you're familiar with these techniques and tactics, you begin to recognize them more easily and realize that the same battles are being waged behind the scenes that were waged during King's lifetime. And this brings me to the Black Lives Matter movement. The Black Lives Matter movement, or BLM, which has been advocating for racial justice and police reform since 2013, has faced a number of challenges and obstacles in its effort to achieve systemic change. Among them are the COINTELPRO-styled tactics employed by government agencies, law enforcement, and reactionary groups. These tactics aim to undermine and disrupt the BLM movement's efforts and limit their effectiveness. One of the most prominent examples of COINTELPRO-styled tactics used against the BLM movement was the FBI's recent surveillance and infiltration of the movement. In 2020, several reports surfaced detailing the FBI's use of undercover agents to spy on BLM protests and gather intelligence on its leaders and organizers. The FBI justified its actions as necessary to prevent violence and protect national security. Where have we heard that before? How is it that any movement or person with a goal of racial justice and equity that gains any notoriety or momentum is instantly considered a threat to national security and subjected to FBI scrutiny? And then, if they get angry about it or take defensive measures, they're instantly militants. That fact alone is sufficient to scare some people away from activism. When the leaders of your movement are all jailed, harassed, beaten, or even murdered, that's quite a deterrent for people who might otherwise want to devote themselves to the cause of social justice. In October 2016, Vox ran an article detailing a lawsuit that was brought against the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security by two civil rights groups, Color of Change and the Center for Constitutional Rights. According to the court filing, the groups filed a Freedom of Information Act request on July 5, 2016, quote, seeking records related to federal government surveillance and monitoring of protest activists related to the movement for black lives, unquote. By as late as September, the organizations had not received a response. But a response finally came. And there's a timeline on the website for the Center for Constitutional Rights indicating that on March 19, 2018, a dump of documents was made, many of them referencing something labeled the, quote, race paper, unquote. The paper itself, however, was not included. When the plaintiffs went back to the courts to press for release of the document, it was finally handed over later in 2018, totally redacted. Even the headline had been blacked out. The Center for Constitutional Rights has another page with a statement that explains their frustration. It reads as follows. Department of Homeland Security Race Paper. The DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis produced several emails sent in early 2017 between their personnel concerning a document they referred to as the, quote, race paper, unquote. Each email attached a separate version of the document, and some emails contained some feedback from DHS personnel on the structure of the document, call for in-person meetings to discuss the paper, and expressly mention, quote, drivers, unquote, and, quote, indicators, unquote. 
all versions of the, quote, race paper, unquote, itself were produced to us, but in completely redacted form. Nothing, not even the official title of the document, is visible. DHS claims the document is exempt from release to the public under certain statutes. Considering the documents are all fully blackout, we are thus left to speculate as to why the DHS would prepare a document it refers to only as the, quote, race paper, unquote, and then closely guard its contents, even to the point of concealing its actual title and a basic description. That's the end of the statement at the website. But what are we supposed to do with that? The federal government is accused of acting illegally, sued by citizens, told by the courts to hand over documents related to the case, including one document with a casual title of the race paper, that would lead anyone to believe this would be highly relevant information in a case regarding current illegal surveillance of a black civil rights movement, which has historically been illegally surveilled, and they willfully hand over nothing. They might as well have burned the paper and turned in a bag of ashes. That is one hell of a loophole for a defendant to have the right to decide whether or not to hand over evidence against themselves in a lawsuit. Seriously, how do I win a case where the person I'm suing is in a position of authority, accused of abusing that authority, and they're allowed to decide whether or not to hand over evidence against themselves? This goes right back to the beginning of the episode. Let me repeat my intro here. I was watching some psychology talks last night and stumbled on something called reactive abuse. What blew me away was recognizing that our justice system is actually predicated on it. We ignore the violence done by our empowered establishments and institutions, which only serve the interests of a narrow demographic with access to wealth, and focus on and harshly punish the violence done by those who dare to defend themselves against it. So a society saturated in injustice against many communities based on demographic traits chooses to only judge the responses to oppression while legitimizing the oppression. It clicked when I started to think about it in the context of the COINTELPRO episode I had just done. And that's the end of the intro passage I wanted to remind folks about. Imagine that in 1971... The Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI, the group that broke into the FBI offices and exposed the illegal COINTELPRO operation, had instead sued the FBI in court demanding the documents. The Freedom of Information Act was in effect even then, signed into law by Lyndon B. Johnson on July 4, 1966. Does it even make sense to expect an authority that's already breaking the law and violating civil rights? facilitating murders and railroading innocent people into prison, would suddenly have a change of heart and decide to act legitimately and expose its own illegal behavior? 100% I would expect them to do exactly what they just did in 2018, fight that order to hand over the documents and then render anything incriminating completely useless before releasing it. And just like with COINTELPRO, no one involved in these new violations will ever be held to account because that's how our injustice system works. Unless someone breaks the law to expose it, it will remain hidden. As late as May 2023, Politico ran a piece detailing how the FBI used a controversial foreign surveillance authority in 2020 to investigate whether protesters involved in the Black Lives Matter movement had ties to terrorists according to two declassified reports. 
According to the article, a newly declassified memorandum ordered from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court released by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence issued more than a year ago, the FBI ran a, quote, batch query, unquote, related to 133 individuals, quote, arrested in connection with civil unrest and protests, unquote, between May 30th and June 18th of 2020. The memorandum noted that the FBI believed the queries on those arrested in connection to the Black Lives Matter protests were, quote, reasonably likely to retrieve evidence of a crime simply because they pertained to persons who had been arrested, unquote. The query was run to determine whether the FBI had any counterterrorism derogatory information on the arrestees, but without any specific potential connections to terrorist-related activity known to those who conducted the queries. The FISC memorandum reads, So let me interject here. They were able to arrest some protesters, and then decided that getting rowdy at a protest meant they could launch a fishing expedition to try and find further dirt on you regarding terrorist ties without any reasonable suspicion whatsoever. That's not how the law works, but it's a very COINTELPRO communist scare method of operating for the FBI. The article goes on to say that when asked about why this occurred, a senior FBI official told reporters that the query was conducted due to a, quote, lack of understanding on the part of the person who ran it, and that person received remedial training as well, unquote. So again, the FBI runs illegal queries on activists to try and find dirt. And does anyone really not know what would have happened to those protesters had any dirt been found? Is there any doubt it would have been used to smear them? That's rhetorical, by the way. What I mean by that is that there is no doubt. And yet, who is held accountable? Instead of catching them in the act of illegally continuing with COINTELPRO tactics, we get, oh, you know, new hires and all, just needed some remedial training, but it's all good now. Who is watching the watchers? Using the system to prosecute the system doesn't work because the system legitimizes harm against citizens, and even when it doesn't, it has no end to the ways in which it can protect its own institutions and individuals to ensure nobody is ever held to account for illegal behavior. The system is not protecting us, it's protecting itself. This is the antithesis of what we promote in public schools, that speech and activism are free from illegal government persecution. It actually seems our government does not allow political speech or activism unless it's ineffective. It reminds me of what I said in an older episode about how you can have a platform or a voice, but not both. If you gain the platform, you'd better not use it to try and change the system. That is, you had better silence your dissenting voice. And likewise, you can dissent all you want so long as you don't have a platform, because the moment you become an effective tool for change, there's a target on your back, put there by the government's law enforcement arm, an arm that seems to engage in a lot of activity that doesn't seem to be about enforcing laws. The other situation that struck me as resonating with what I knew about COINTELPRO was something that felt like a smear campaign aimed at BLM regarding misuse of organizational funds. This actually did a lot of damage to the organization, and I saw a lot of people sharing this information or mentioning it on threads as though it was fact-based and damning. 
It involved three separate situations. First was a claim that an individual had purchased a million-dollar-plus personal property with organization funds. Second was a claim that the same individual had purchased a six-million-dollar personal property with organization funds. And third was a complaint that BLM Global Network Foundation was not doing enough to support the chapters financially. Regarding the first claim, I wasn't able to find anything definitive, but the reporting was sketchy, so I simply don't know, but it's possible there was some mishandling of funds. Regarding the second claim, the Associated Press in 2022 reported that BLM reported the property in their tax filings, which shows that the $6 million was spent on a Los Angeles area compound. The Studio City property consists of a large structure with six bedrooms and bathrooms, a swimming pool, a soundstage, and office space. It was purchased as a campus for a Black Artist Fellowship, and according to the BLM board, it's currently used for that purpose. The final complaint about concerns from the local chapters requires a little explanation of how the groups coexist. Black Lives Matter, BLM, is an activist movement. It was founded in 2013 by three black community organizers, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi. The BLM Global Network Foundation is a registered nonprofit organization established in 2017 to support the BLM movement and its local chapters. It provides funding, resources, and support to BLM chapters and partners, and it operates independently of the BLM movement and its various chapters. While the BLM Global Network Foundation is affiliated with the BLM movement, it is important to note that BLM is a decentralized movement with numerous local chapters. Therefore, the Global Network Foundation does not control or direct the activities of all BLM chapters, and not all BLM activists or supporters are affiliated with the Global Network Foundation. Whether or not the foundation is doing enough to support local chapters is a subjective question that I can't answer. There was a lawsuit filed by some local BLM chapters against the foundation, and when I googled the result, I found it was dismissed with the judge finding the chapters failed to establish their allegations and claims. I have sat on the board of multiple nonprofits in various states of growth, and an article in the Associated Press about all of this has a quote that sums up how I see the flurry of allegations around BLM and these financial rumors. This comes from mid-2022 reporting. Quote, the tax filing suggests the organization is still finding its footing. It currently has no executive director or in-house staff. Nonprofit experts tell the AP that the BLM Foundation seems to be operating like a scrappy organization with far fewer resources, although some say black-led charities face unfair scrutiny in an overwhelmingly white and wealthy philanthropic landscape. Still, its governance structure makes it difficult to disprove allegations of impropriety, financial mismanagement, and deviation from mission that have dogged the BLM Foundation for years, one expert said. It comes across as an early startup nonprofit without substantial governance structure in place that got a huge windfall, said Brian Mittendorf, a professor of accounting at Ohio State University who focuses on nonprofit organizations and their financial statements. People are going to be quick to assume that mismatch reflects intent, he added. Whether there's anything improper here, that's another question, but whether they've set themselves up for being criticized, I think that certainly is the case because they didn't plug a bunch of those gaps, unquote. And that's also the end of the quote from the AP article. It appears at any rate as though BLM could have done better than it did in some management aspects. 
but there is no clear evidence of intentional misuse of funds that I can find. A lot of allegation and innuendo, and some areas that could have been handled better. So we have a small organization suffering from growing pains that didn't handle its growth perfectly. There's room for legitimate criticism and improvement. And I guess my question is whether this constitutes sufficient cause to topple the entire BLM movement along with its goals and momentum. I ask that because when I Google, how did BLM lose momentum, I'm inundated with a slew of articles telling me how far and how fast the movement has declined in no small part due to these financial issues, which to me seemed to explode a lot harder than was warranted based on what's actually there. In an Axios article from just last month, they mentioned support for BLM is at the lowest point in three years. According to the article, a slim majority of Americans, 51%, still back BLM, but the movement aimed at tackling systemic racism has seen a sharp drop in support amid a conservative backlash and reports of infighting and financial mismanagement of fledgling BLM groups. And that financial mismanagement comes up again later in the article when it says, quote, A coalition of Black Lives Matter chapters last year sued the BLM Global Network Foundation over allegations of defrauding the local activist groups. BLM leaders came under criticism last year for buying a $6 million home in California with donated funds, unquote. Bear in mind, this was a small organization that fell into $90 million very quickly. Currently, they are at $42 million, and they report an operating budget of $4 million, which is right in line with the recommendation of the Better Business Bureau, which indicates that less than 10% should be spent on nonprofit operating costs. The article in AP also says, The idea that we have 400 years of oppression and all of a sudden we're going to steamroll ourselves into utopia, it's just not a reality, Rashad Robinson, president of the advocacy group Color of Change, told Axios. Robinson said opponents of racial justice are well-funded and will try to protect the status quo. They just need to fight to keep things the same. We had to fight to change, unquote. Basically, this movement was doing really well. Then some negative publicity came out, and now I never hear about them anymore. Those marches were huge. They were effective. Then a little bad press comes along and wipes it out. Even if everything claimed was true, it should not have had the impact it did. But there's more. The FBI also paid a felon with a history of violence to infiltrate the Denver BLM and entrench himself in the racial justice movement there as an informant. The Intercept reported that, quote, Michael Adam Windecker II went by the nickname Mickey and boasted of having been a soldier for the French Foreign Legion and a Kurdish fighting force. He claimed to have traveled to those battlefields and trained anti-fascist activists there in weapons, hand-to-hand combat, and explosives, and the FBI paid him tens of thousands of dollars in cash to infiltrate and spy on racial justice groups during the summer of 2020. End quote. Intercept reporter Trevor Aronson was unable to get the FBI to issue a statement on any of this, and when he tried to talk directly to Windecker, he was told, quote, I do not work for the FBI. I've never worked for the FBI. If you get proof of me working for the FBI, then I'll say otherwise, but there's no proof because I didn't work for them, unquote. 
After Aronson explained he had FBI reports and recordings to the contrary, Windecker's comments changed to, quote, I don't talk to the press, I don't talk to politicians, and I don't talk to police, unquote. According to the article, quote, In their report adding him to the Bureau's more than 15,000 informants, FBI agents described Windecker as something of a good Samaritan, a kind of volunteer Captain America. But that notion was undercut by other Bureau documents, which detailed Windecker's history as both an informant and a criminal, with prior arrests in Colorado, Nevada, Texas, and Florida for crimes including sexual assault. In one case, for felony menacing with a weapon in 2001, Windecker stuck a gun in a woman's face and claimed to be a police officer looking for a suspect. That incident resulted in a felony conviction and Windecker served two years. While he was in prison, according to FBI internal reports, another inmate tried to hire him to murder someone. Instead of committing the crime, Windecker became a cooperating witness and helped convict the people who sought to enlist him. In addition to criminal charges, Windecker has had four protection orders filed against him in Colorado, the most recent in 2021. In a petition for a protection order filed in 2016, a friend of Windecker's alleged that Windecker had presented a fake police badge and threatened to kill him and his family, end quote. For the FBI's part, their second-in-command, David Bowditch, compared BLM protesters to 9-11 terrorism. And during Trump's first year in office, they created a brand new form of terrorism just for activists for racial justice called Black Identity Extremism. Eventually, this was toned down to the dog whistle label Racially Motivated Violent Extremism, a category that combined white supremacy with anti-racism activities. And again, we're back to that intro to the episode and how we fail to show any compassion for reactive abuse. The white supremacist in a white supremacist society is not at all in the same category as the marginalized, racialized community that suffers under the institutions and policies of the white supremacist culture. I can only imagine what is in that totally redacted document, that race paper from the DHS. The entire history of black civil rights in the U.S. is a non-stop, never-ending battle against this nation's white supremacist power structure that is intent on perceiving racial justice as a threat to its dominance. I just did a quick Google search, and although 11.3% of the FBI workforce is black, only 4.6% of their agents are black. It's no wonder it was headed by someone as obsessed with white dominance as Hoover, and based on what's going on today and how the operation doesn't look much different, I'm skeptical that any progress has been made within the organization. In testimony before the Senate in 2021, the FBI's then-assistant director for counterterrorism, Jill Sanborn, flatly denied the FBI had the power to monitor social media. Her statement was used as evidence that concerns about federal involvement in social media were unfounded as relates to BLM. The only problem was that the answer was false. The Senate report indicates, quote, FBI leadership mischaracterized the Bureau's authorities to monitor social media, unquote. The report went on to call it an, quote, exaggeration of the limits on FBI's authorities, unquote, which are actually far more broad. The FBI had been working with a company named Dataminer, but in January 2021, they moved to a new company called ZeroFox to monitor social media accounts. 
In its defense, Data Miner said it doesn't provide the ability to target, monitor, or profile social media users. However, as The Intercept points out, quote, While it may be technically true that flagging social media posts based on keywords isn't the same as continuously flagging posts from a specific account, the notion that this doesn't amount to monitoring specific users is misleading. If an account is routinely using certain keywords such as hashtag Black Lives Matter, flagging those keywords would surface the same accounts repeatedly, unquote. Beyond this, at protests, BLM activists were subjected to tactics not used in other contexts. Flashbang grenades, tear gas, and rubber bullets, for example, were used at BLM protests, but tear gas was specifically prohibited for use during the Capitol insurrection. This past April, Rolling Stone ran an article entitled, A War Crimes Team Investigated the Portland Police. The Results Are Damning. During the night of June 2, 2020, Police used so much tear gas that concentrations in the air were thousands of times above safe levels. It looks like COINTELPRO never ended as far as tactics and targets. The program itself may be officially retired, but from a practical standpoint, it's still ongoing. I actually had another section on surveillance of Muslim community groups that I was going to include, but once again, I'm going long. I decided to wrap with something fun. I've been playing with AI chat, and as an exercise, I actually collaborated with an AI language model to script this episode. It was interesting to see what the AI got wrong, and also where it was useful. It seemed like we both learned from each other. Don't worry, though. I did a lot of fact-checking on the AI offerings. This is not a copy-paste talk. It's me and my ideas my research and editing, but the AI helped keep me on track. So I'm going to let the AI language model usher us out by reading its response to my final question, which was, what is the best way to thwart COINTELPRO tactics? Here is what AI recommends. The best response to thwart COINTELPRO tactics is to be aware of them and take steps to protect oneself and one's organization. Here are some strategies. Number one, educate yourself and your organization about COINTELPRO tactics. By learning about the tactics that were used in the past, you can recognize and resist similar tactics in the present. Number two, maintain a culture of security. Encourage your organization to adopt security practices to protect against surveillance and other tactics. This may include using secure communication methods, avoiding public spaces for sensitive conversations, and conducting regular security training. Number three, build alliances with other groups. By working together with other organizations facing similar threats, you can share knowledge and resources and create a broad network of support and visibility. Number four, document and expose abuses. Keep detailed records of any harassment or surveillance that you or your organization experience and share this information with trusted allies, lawyers, and the media. By exposing these abuses, you can help to hold accountable those who attempt to disrupt your work. Number five, stay resilient. Despite the challenges posed by COINTELPRO tactics, it's essential to remain committed to your goals and to take care of yourself and your team members. 
Seek support from allies, mentors, and counselors as needed, and take steps to prioritize self-care, including rest and exercise. And that's it from the AI language model. Thanks for listening, and stay safe out there. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring experience and meaning in individuals and the broader society. Like and subscribe if you enjoy these talks. And in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.